along. Father, we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, our hearts are so filled with gratitude for the things that you had your son teach us before he went to the cross and then was raised from the dead. We thank you for these priceless, timeless truths. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach them to us in a new way. We ask that we would gain understanding of them, living understanding. We want more than what we see right now. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, teach us. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're on intimacy with the Trinity from John chapter 14. We're on session 8. And we're focusing on John 14, verse 10 and 11. The union of Jesus with his Father. And the Jesus is going to set it forth. And uh, he's not going to break it down real in details, but there's details throughout the Gospel of John. Then he's going to say, this is the way that we, me and the Father want to relate to you. So he makes it really practical. He sets himself forth as the, he describes how he relates to the Father as a man in his humanity and then calls us into the same reality in this age, of course, in part, but in fullness in the age to come, but in part in this age. We want to grow in this reality. The overall context, as you've heard week after week, is Jesus' command to the disciples to not allow trouble to dominate their heart. And verse by verse, he's giving them reasons of how to engage with him, I mean, so that trouble would not dominate their heart, but rather peace would. And in this verse 10 and 11, it's by engaging in relationship with the Father, like he relates to the Father, some of the same principles, and that would cause our hearts to be liberated from being dominated with trouble. That's the general context of the flow of the argument. Paragraph B, one of Jesus' primary themes in John 14 is what the Father's like and also how God's people relate to the Father. It's not only what he's like, but how he wants us to relate to him. In other words, we're called to participate in this age and the family dynamics of the Trinity, the way Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that divine family, the way they interact, They've extended that invitation, saying to new covenant believers, come and interact with us the way that we interact as a family together because you're part of our family. And Jesus described this in John, 17, in John 14, verse 7 to 24. You can study that out later and kind of piece it together. Then he applied it in John 15, which we'll look at in our next semester, our next course. So specifically, paragraph one, Jesus described his relationship with the Father as a man. This is an important part because he's not talking to them saying, this is how I, as, as being fully God, relate to my Father who is fully God. That's a true reality, but that's not the point he's, he's uh, uh, emphasizing here. I'm describing how I, as a man, filled with the Holy Spirit, relate to my Father. And I want you, I'm in beckoning you to relate to the Father according to those same principles. I mean, this is high and lofty. This is, he's going to the ideals. And we're not sure how far we get in these ideals, 
but we want to keep these ideals before us and keep reaching for them and not be easily content with a relationship, a relationship with God that's just outside of this reality. Like many believers, this is not what they're reaching for. And uh, many of you here, we're reaching for it. We're not as far along as we want, but we know what we're reaching for. Paragraph 2, let me say it a little different way. John 14, verse 7 to 11, is not a doctrinal lesson about Jesus' deity. It's a doctrinal lesson about his humanity and how he as a human relates to God. It's not perplexing that God lives in union with God. I mean, the fact that Jesus being fully God is in union with his Father who's fully God, that's, that's not perplexing. What's perplexing is, is that a human on the earth could have a deep, intimate relationship with the transcendent God, the Genesis 1 God. I mean, their minds are blown because they, they're aware he's anointed and he's the Messiah. They're very aware of that. But they're saying, you're saying that as a man that eats and sleeps and has the weakness of humanity, and the limitations, you're relating to the Genesis 1 God in the way you're describing? He goes, yes. And, and this, isn't, this, is, this is a challenge for these guys. I mean, they're postured to believe him, but they can't connect the dots. How can a human relate to the God of Moses who when Mo, the, the glory of God appeared to Moses in, in Exodus 19 after they came to the Red Sea, the whole mountain shook with fire and, and anybody that touched the mountain would die. And Jesus says, no, this is a new way. It's called the new covenant. And I'm the model and the source of that, and I'm calling you to that. Paragraph C. The disciples undoubtedly found it difficult to believe a human could relate to the transcendent God of Israel in this intimate way. I mean, they knew he was close to God, but not like I am in him and he is in me. Like, whoa, that's another level. That's not just I'm anointed by him and I'm a vessel. I am in the Father and the Father's in me. And then he goes on to say, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and I'm in you and you're in me. He says that in verse 20. I'm getting ahead of myself. And they're going to go like, well, <laughs> we, can't, we can't even go there with you being with the Father like that. Yes, we know you're anointed. We know you're called. We know you're uniquely powerful and you're in a class of your own, but saying you're in the God of Israel and he is in you at this level. We looked at this a little bit last week, verse uh, seven. If you had understood me, you have understood my father. From now on, you know and you have seen my father. From now on, you can think what I did. What I did when, I, when we were in need of food, I multiplied it. When there was a storm, I commanded it to stop and walked on the water. When I saw a leper, I healed it. Now you know that's what the Father does, the invisible God. So now you can see the Father. When you see someone healed, you know it's the Father, though you can't see the Father's body. You now can connect the dots and understand, because I've taught you, he's doing the things that I have done, because we, I'm showing who he is. But you've never understood the God of Israel was the one doing this. Now you can see. Now I've given you the information where you can connect the dots because I'm going to die tomorrow. And you've got to understand, though you don't see God's physical hand 
He's going to be doing the same thing. He's going to forgive the prostitute and the tax gatherer. He's going to be kind and gentle to the stranger. He's going to provide in ways that I've shown you in my natural ministry. Now you know that's what the Father's like. I've informed you, and now you can see him. Now when you see those things happen, you stop and say, that's the Father. We never knew that before. That's the Father, that miracle over there. Boy, it would be great to see his physical hand like we saw Jesus's, but now we can recognize his activity. That's what Jesus is telling them in verse seven to nine. Paragraph D, now he's gonna elaborate, he's gonna go to the next, he's gonna bring the, his argument, not argument, his case or what he's presenting to the next level. He's gonna say, okay, now I wanna introduce you to how God relates to humans. I've given you a new way to interpret God, verse seven to nine. You're gonna be able to see his activity without seeing his physical hand, but you're gonna know it's him now. Now I'm gonna go to the next step and introduce how God wants to relate to redeemed human beings. They're going, okay, this is all new stuff to them. He goes, verse 10, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? Again, this is a big statement. He's, again, not just saying, do you not believe I'm anointed and I'm used by God as the Messiah? They go, yeah, we got that. We're really clear. You're in God, like, and he's in you. It, that's, that's another level than like the spirit of the Lord rested on Elijah and the spirit of the Lord rested on David and did mighty acts and Elisha. But to be in God and God in them at that intimate level, that's a different, that's a different grid that they're not familiar with. He goes, I'll, I'll say this, verse 10, the words, meaning the teachings that I give you, the truths that I'm laying before you. They're not, I'm not speaking these teachings or these truths on my own initiative. It's actually the Father living inside of me and my humanity that he is speaking through me and he's doing these miracles. It's actually the Father doing it. Verse 11, he repeats it now for emphasis. It's a cryptic idea. I mean, it's, it's out of their reach, their understanding. He says, let me say it again. I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. Now, paragraph one, now this is just one facet of it, but this is enough to begin the, the, our process of growing in this. When Jesus said, I am in the Father, he's saying, my thoughts are in his heart. What I'm thinking it's in his heart. My feelings, what I'm feeling is in him. He's feeling what I'm feeling. My words are in his heart. And he, the idea is that the father greatly delights in what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and what I'm doing. I'm in him in that way. And he goes, but it doesn't end there. What the father, the invisible God in heaven is thinking, it's in my heart. He's, it's in me and I delight in it. So, yes, his presence, his spirit is in me, but in a practical way, his emotions, his words, are, they're in my heart, and I love them. That's why I say them. And again, these guys are a little bit dumbfounded, and it takes them a while to get their mind around this. And the Gospel of John, when you read it in retrospect, all of these principles are made known in the Gospel of John. But they haven't put it together yet, and I don't know how long it takes John to put it together, you know, as he writes the gospel some decades later. Let me say it again, paragraph E. 
John's gospel highlights at least, at least five aspects. I'm not saying there can't be more. Five aspects of the union of the invisible God of Israel, the Father, and the human expression of the Father in Jesus of Nazareth. Their thoughts are in each other's mind. Their emotions are shared with one another. Their will, their words, their actions. In other words, they think and feel and speak in ways that are in perfect unity with the other one. I mean, if you spoke and your words move somebody's heart in a deep way, in that limited sense, you're in their heart. Because they, 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 they delight and revel in your, those words and, and they touch them deeply and they go, yeah, they're mine now. I mean, I delight in this so much. It's a part of me now. Your words are a part of me. And Jesus is saying our relationship at every level is, at this, is, is this. He's in me and, and I'm in him plus the reality of the Spirit of God and the very fire and essence of the Holy Spirit, and that's mystical to our human understanding how all that works. But these are practical ways that it's expressed, the union between the Father and the Son. And the reason we're laying this out, because he's going to say in verse 20, that's what you and I are going to do in the days to come. My words are going to be so in your heart And your words, when you speak, are not going to be in my heart. To where that's one little way of which I'm in you and you're in me. Your emotions. Your decisions. I mean, this is an incredible high uh, reality that he's putting before the disciples. Paragraph F, I believe that verse 10 and 11 is a foundational principle of the new covenant reality. And again, we enter into it somewhat in this age, but if we reach for it, we enter into more of it. But in the age to come, forever and forever, we're gonna live in this family dynamic of how the Father, Son, and Spirit and his children will work, will live in this together. John 17 really unpacks this more, the last seven verses of John 17, but that's down the road. Okay, top of page two. Let's look at paragraph H. Just in review, it's the Holy Trinity. It's the reality of the Holy Trinity that Jesus is indicating by saying, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. That's that's a, a summary for the Trinity functions together in these dynamic ways. And we looked a little bit at how the Trinity functions in the limited way that any of us could understand it. We looked at that at our, our last semester, so this is a little bit of review. There's one God who forever dwells in three distinct persons. And this, these three distinct persons, they're co-equal in their divinity. They're equally divine. They're equally fully uncreated God. Three distinct persons, but it's one deity. And it's the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is distinctly different from the other in their function. They each have a different role in the functions that they share. When they do a task together, they have a different function in that task. But their work is unified. There's no uh, contradiction. There's no uh, tension in their work as they do their part of the task. They're They're each one fully engaged with joy in what the other one's doing. 
The father, when he's working, is engaged with joy with the son while the son does his part of the task as well. Their work is interdependent on each other, meaning it matters that they're all three engaged in whatever work Jesus is doing. Because the takeaway we're going to get to is that the father says, Jesus is really saying, that's how the father's going to live with you. That's the point I'm making. I'm not just blowing your mind about how mean the father worked. That's ultimately what you're called to forever. Again, there's undoubtedly just bouncing off. Kind of like us, you know, we look at this and go like, what? And the Holy Spirit, I mean, I, I, I love the, the, the verse in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of, the, of God's heart and gives them to us. And this is forever. The Holy Spirit is forever discerning the deep things of the Father's heart to give them to us. And these are just some real brief sentences pointing to those deep things. And the Holy Spirit is, in essence, beckoning us, come and live in this. Go as deep as you can in this life, but know that forever and forever, this is your portion. I'm not content to wait for the fullness. I want more of this now. Paragraph one, I mean, H-I, paragraph I. <laughs> Each person in the Godhead fully enjoys the relationship of the other two. For instance, Jesus has enthusiasm in his love for the Father. He's moved in loving the Father, and he's moved by being loved by the Father. Jesus said, Father, I love you. Oh, my heart's filled with it. And the fact you love me, oh, that fills my heart. He's not disinterested or bored at all in his relationship with the Father. Well, that's glorious in itself. But it's a picture of how he relates to you. He is actually never bored with you. I mean, you might get bored with you. I get bored with me sometimes. You know, I, I get it. But this is a picture of how God loves people. He goes the same way that the father loves the son and the son loves the father. That's how the father loves his children. John 17, 23, Jesus said, the father loves you in the intensity that he loves me the same way. He's never bored with you. The devil comes with so many accusations and so many lies to get us onto a different narrative. But this John 14 reality, I mean, again, it's, 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 it's uh, holy and high and it's the ideal, but it's real to the Father. It doesn't feel real to us, but it's real to him. But we want to agree with the word of God to where it becomes more real to us even in this age. Paragraph J. The union in the Godhead, Godhead being Father, Son, Holy Spirit, most of you understand that phrase. The way they relate to each other, the union of those three, reveals the nature, the quality, and the intensity of how they love each other. The way their union reveals the nature of how they relate to each other. The quality, I mean, it's the highest quality conceivable and the intensity. In other words, the way the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, it's the model and the source for how we relate to God. But it doesn't even stop there. It's the model and the source of how the saints in John 17 will relate to one another when love is perfected. I mean, that's just like, that's a whole nother level. 
Jesus is not saying, you're not just going to enter into this with us. You're going to enter into this with each other forever. We have a plan that's so perfect and beautiful and complete that you're going to enter into these family dynamics with us. Again, in part in this age, but forever and forever in the new Jerusalem, in the Father's house, at his table, in the great garden of the Father, the, the, the garden of Eden reality that's going to fill the whole earth one day. And then even beyond that, in, that's for another subject for another day. Their relationship, we're still in paragraph J, gives us a picture of what perfect love is, of how God relates to God. Their relationship of how God relates to believers, how believers relate to God, how believers relate to one another. I'm just repeating it. It's the whole, it's the whole panorama of the relationship completely, of God with God and God with his people and his people with his people, a completely blessed family forever. Paragraph K. This is a little bit, you know, it's mystical, it's ideal, it's lofty, it's a little cryptic. Maybe it's a lot cryptic for our natural minds. But the hints of this, they wow and woo my heart. Even the hints, the breadcrumbs make me want to go after this. I want, I, want to, I want to touch this more. Our ability, I'm a bit in a practical way, our ability to receive God's love. Our ability to return it, to love God back in return. Our ability to love one another is actually anchored in the reality of how the Trinity re re relates with one another. The way that we, God loves us and we love God, it's anchored in this reality. And the more that we see it, even a little bit, just the breadcrumbs, and we speak it and say, Holy Spirit, thank you for this, show me more, it grows little by little. It's the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 2 again, verse 10, giving us the deep things of, God's, of the Father's heart. That's what Jesus, the Paul said. He, the Spirit wants to give us these deep things. And he went on to say, these deep things of God's heart, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It, it's never entered in the imagination of a human how deep and how glorious these things are. But the Spirit will give it to you little by little, even in this age, if that's what you want. You're, we're going, okay. He says, but you got to talk to me more. You got to make more space in your life for the conversation and for the meditation and the interaction together. Paragraph K, I'm going to read it again. Our ability to receive God's love and to love him back is anchored in this reality. And the more we understand it, the more we have those moments of inspiration, of empowering of our own mind and, under, and, and emotions. Those moments of inspiration, of empowering, a little bit of that goes a long way. A little bit of that goes a long way. Some folks, because they think, well, I can't even hardly get this. I'm not even going to try. No, no. Take the breadcrumbs and let them lead you to more, to the feast. And grow in it little by little. Say, Lord, thank you that this is true. These, each of these specific little parts of the relationship, thank you this is true. And show me more. Thank you, Father, that what's in your heart is, I mean, the, the, your thoughts are in Jesus' heart. You're in him in that way, and he delights in that. Show me more about these things. I want to understand this more, and I want to interact, interact with, the, I mean, engage with this in my own walk with you, Father. We lose much by neglecting to try to understand even a portion of this. 
A lot of folks, you know, they would, I don't know that anyone says this, but just like, well, you know, that's the Trinity, that's heavy stuff, we're not going to get it anyway. Why bother with it? Let's just go on to the next ministry trip and not, not even mess with it. Let's just get busy and let's just move on. But the Holy Spirit would say, no, no, don't give in so quickly. I can teach you some of this. I can impart some of this in your own understanding. I can, I can inspire your heart. Paragraph L, going back again, we're looking at the way the Trinity interacts with each other, is that, <coughs> excuse me, the three persons of the Trinity, in every work they do, they do it together. In creation, the Father had a, a role in, in the task of creation, the Son had and the Spirit had. And my goal isn't to break all that down right now. In the incarnation, when Jesus, uh, when the Spirit touched Mary and she was with child. The Father worked in that, the Spirit worked in that, and Jesus worked in that. So I don't know how it all works, but they were all in every one of their acts together. They just had different roles in the tasks. In the miracles, in the atonement, the fact that he went to the cross and the price was paid for our sin that we could receive the gift of righteousness as a free gift, all three persons of the Godhead had a role in that. The resurrection itself. You know, look at John chapter 10, verse 18. The verse down here is that Jesus told uh, uh, the people around him, he goes, to the Pharisees, he goes, I can actually raise myself from the dead. Excuse me? There's several verses that the Father raised Jesus. There's several verses that the Spirit raised Jesus. And Jesus said, I can myself. I have the power. I'm involved in this as well. Wow, that's a whole nother level. We don't get all the, all the details. and We don't have to get all the nuances and details. That's, I believe, beyond our even capacity. But we can get more, a little bit more than we have now. And then a little bit more of that. Then a little bit more. And then a little bit more. You know, a few years becomes a decade, a couple decades becomes a lifetime, and there's incredible wealth that has touched our hearts. Paul called it the, the exceeding riches of the glory of the grace of God, the exceeding wealth of God's grace. Let's uh, enter into it more and more that we can. Okay, let's look at paragraph M. So uh, we're looking at this, at this verse again, verse 10. Now we're going to tie it to verse 20. I just put it together just so you see it right there. This must have shocked the disciples, what he said in verse 20. Well, I think it shocked him what he said in verse 10. He goes, I am in the Father. I am in the Father. My words are in his heart, and he delights in them so much. My decisions are in his heart, and he delights in them so much. My works are in his heart. And again, it's more than this, but this is just the introduction. I am in the Father. I have a human body. He's the Genesis 1 God. Like, wow, that's a little hard, a little shocking. Then in verse 20, he goes, we're going to take it to a whole nother level. He goes, at that day, you will experience, you will know, you'll know by experience, because this isn't just head knowledge. This is experiential knowledge. You will know in living reality, that I am in the Father for real, and that you are in me and I'm in you. And they're thinking, you're in us. How is that? How is a man 
in another person's soul. You're going to be in us? You're going to be in our soul and our being? In what way? How's that, how does that work? My spirit is going to be in you, and I'm going to, your unspoken thoughts, I will know all of them, and my unspoken thoughts, you will know some of them. And you and I will communicate, and we will be together forever. So if we go down the road and, you know, like the woman at the well, he was at the well, and they went and got lunch and brought it back. You mean when we go down the road, you, you're at the well, you still go down the road with this? Yeah, I'll never leave you after this. Like, how's that work? I mean, this was so odd. Think about it. I mean, we're used to the Bible verse, so we kind of think, well, that's amazing, but we don't think about it much. How could a, a person say to another person, these, these, I, these things, these things are, they're otherworldly. They're, they're never, ever been said before. No human has ever said to a human, I am in you and you are in me and I'm always with you. Like, okay. I mean, maybe some human has, but then they needed a little treatment. <clears throat> this is my thoughts, my feelings, my words, my actions. They're deeply moved, my Father. And his thoughts and words and actions, they deeply move me. And number one, the redeemed are in Jesus. Our thoughts are in his heart. It, it, well, you think, man, if that's true, if that's, and, uh, some of you might think, oh, no, I got some bad thoughts. And that's, <laughs> that's not the point. So they're talking about the, your thoughts to do the will of God and to work with God. They're actually in his heart. He doesn't write you off. He doesn't ignore them. They're in his heart, actually. And they move him. If that's true, thank you, Lord. Show me more of this. You mean when I talk to you, though I don't see hardly anything happen that I can measure, you're telling me I am in you? My, what I'm doing is in your heart and in your mind, and you're delighting in it, and it matters to you? Me? Really? That's what he's saying here. This is a monumental, a massive declaration that he's making here. The very fact that he answers our prayers. The very fact that he gives us eternal rewards based on our words. Tell us. They're in his heart. They move him. I mean, the fact that you can say words, and then when you stand before the Lord, maybe many, many years from now, or you give someone a cup of cold water, he said, surely you will be rewarded. That's in my heart. What you do and what you say, I remember it. It moves me. You will see. And my statement is, Lord, if show, thank you for this reality. Show me more. And again, this is just the introduction of being in him, us being in him. It's not that our human spirit is like, is in his spirit, but we're in him in this way. We don't have an omnipresent human spirit. He has an omnipresent spirit that can be in every human being, but for us to be in him, how are we in him? How are we burning in his heart and before him at this level? Top of page uh, three. He's made this dynamic statement in 14 verse 20. I mean, the then you will know I am in you and you are in me. This is so dramatic. It's such an extreme declaration. He's inviting, inviting the, the believers 
to enter into the very relational union that he's just presented to them that he's enjoyed with the Father. And it starts very soon. Well, really, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit, uh, the Spirit is literally in them, but it's more than the Spirit being in them because the Spirit's in you, but it's, He wants more than the Spirit to be technically in you. He wants the activity of the Spirit to be in your heart and in your mind and you delighting in it and being aware of it. That's the fuller expression of Him being in you. Jesus told His disciples, I mean, this is a, such a strange statement to them at the time in John 16, verse 7. He goes, actually, it's to your advantage that I die. Because if I die, I send the Spirit, then that means my thoughts, my unspoken thoughts in the natural can be in your heart. You can't see my body. You don't hear them audibly. But those words are in your heart, and I will speak them freshly to you. Though others won't hear them, they'll be invisible and inaudible, but you will hear them by your spirit. Like, wow. He goes, it's actually to your advantage. Again, I already mentioned this. Imagine if one of your friends told you, you know, he comes, uh, you know, one of your good buddies, and he says, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm going to put my spirit in your mind. You'd go, okay, you're What? I'm going to put my spirit in your mind. So we could communicate at a much deeper level. And if you go on a trip far away to some overseas missions trip, I will be with you literally because my spirit will be in your mind. You would look at your friend and say, wow, that, that's pretty extreme. And your unspoken thoughts, I will know them and you will know some of my unspoken thoughts. It's way closer than we have it right now. Because right now, you've got to be within hearing distance or you've got to be within visual eyesight to see what I'm doing. But the where it's going, it's, way, it's much to your advantage. This is so extreme. We can get so accustomed to these ideas. He's in us, we're in him, the Spirit's in us, that it doesn't really mean anything practical in terms of everyday lifestyle. Paragraph P, that Christ is in us and we're in him. We're not in any other human being this way, and no human being is in you this way. This is completely unique and new in the human experience and unique only to Jesus. No other person can enter into your mind to know all of your unspoken thoughts and give their unspoken thoughts to you. That's an inconceivable idea. It's impossible. But with Jesus, this is what he's calling them to. That's how, this is how, Unique, but how glorious this is. And if we, if we enter, uh, engage with this in a more intentional way, we grow in it. Again, those breadcrumbs get bigger and bigger, leading us to that greater feast. Paragraph Q, the mutual indwelling. Theologians through history, I don't want to give a big theology thing, they talk about the mutual indwelling. That's a phrase, if you... Study uh, John 14 and the in the Trinity. You'll run into this phrase, the mutual indwelling. It's a common phrase you'll you, you'll run into regularly. And the mutual indwelling is that God dwells in in redeemed and redeemed dwell in Jesus. Jesus dwells in them and they dwell in Him. And the Father dwells in the Son and the Son dwells in the Father. And it's you know it's mystical and there's a bit written on it. You know over the two thousand years of church history, but it's 
Many believers don't even think much about that and they just move right on. But I, it's really worth studying this out. I'm sure everything that's written about it is not helpful or even accurate. But as I've studied this stuff a bit and I find just moments of inspiration and little sparks of light of insight come. And I, go, I go, I want more of this. I want more of this. So I just wanted you familiar with the term because most believers don't think about it, don't read about it, don't care about it. They just leave it for the, you know, the age of the resurrection, and they'll go, hey, we'll, we'll connect it all when we get there. I want to connect it now more and more. This reciprocal indwelling describes the closest possible relationship between a believer and between God himself. This mutual reciprocal indwelling what we say and think and feel dwells in him. What he says, thinks, and feel can dwell in us, plus the presence of his actual spirit, as well as what he thinks and feels. It's all connected together. Now, some people through history have studied this out, this mutual indwelling is a phrase again in history. You won't find of it, much of it in popular books in the Western world or, or anywhere in popular Christianity, modern Christianity, because you know most believers... The conversation of much of the body of Christ today is how to interact with Jesus to get more money, to get more healing, to get more favor, to get more stuff, to make life easier. It's not really about interacting at this deep level. I mean, there's some millions going there, but hundreds of millions aren't, but I believe that's gonna change before the Lord returns. But anyway, through history, a few have gone there and they've taken it too far and they get deceived in thinking, wait, if he's in us and we're in him, maybe there's more to us than we thought. And they get all confused and they, they get into deception that they're, you know, part deity or part this or that. I mean, there's all kinds of expressions of this through history, but there's no implication of that at all. And, and obviously, I don't think you're going to buy into that. But folks that sometimes get real deep into this, they, they don't know where the boundaries are. Most do, but some don't. And in paragraph S, I just give you a few little outworkings of how this works, just a little bit, just so you can look at it and say, okay, I'm getting it a little bit more. It's still a little bit strange. Uh, okay, but so you can look at paragraph S a little bit more. Jesus sees the Father. He hears the Father, does what the Father. There's just some different verbs in here of different ones. The Father does some things. The Son does some things. The Spirit says, does some that are unique to them in their relationship together, but this is not comprehensive. This is just a little kind of a little of a push forward, a little jump start. Paragraph T, God created us in three parts. We know that body, soul, and spirit. And his Holy Spirit dwells in our human spirit. Our human spirit is not omnipresent, doesn't dwell in his, but his spirit dwells in us. We're one spirit in the Lord in that sense. His spirit, his uncreated life, in other words, the life of God, is more than animal life. You know, God gives animal life to, to human beings, to animals. I, I mean, physical life is what I'm talking about. But then there's the Zoe life we've talked about before, but there's a lot written on this, which is the, you know, one preacher called it the God kind of life, the uncreated life of God, it's that supernatural spiritual life that's deposited in our spirit. <coughs> and in that sense, we are one spirit with the Lord. 
Now, that's it's so exciting that spirit, the Holy Spirit came to live in our spirit. The challenge is our soul, mind, emotion, and will. That's where we can discern things, in our mind, emotion, and will, in our body. So we got the Holy Spirit living in our human spirit, but until we interact with the Holy Spirit, with our mind, emotions, and will, we, don't, we, don't, we often do not even discern his presence in us. Because you can't get a handful of the Holy Spirit living in your human spirit, measure it. By talking to the Holy Spirit, by agreeing with the Holy Spirit, we feel his inspiration activity in our soul, our mind, emotion, and will. And we can feel it sometimes on our bodies. But the fact that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us is a great miracle, but many folks, they leave it there. They don't, in their mind, emotion, and will, they're so interact with, their, with the Spirit who dwells in their human spirit. And so they have this glorious wealth and riches in them they don't draw on. And you can go for decades and not draw on it and still be born again, but lose out on so much that's within your reach. I like paragraph U that... Uh, uh, it says in the New King James, the translation that I usually, I typically use, talking about the Holy Spirit, that out of his heart will flow living water. Speaking of the, 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 out of the human heart, the Holy Spirit will flow. But the New American Standard says from your innermost being. I think that's, many would agree that's the more accurate translation. It's not from your mind, emotion, and will, but it's from your human spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in your human spirit, but you can't measure or discern the Spirit's presence there unless your mind, emotions, and will, you actually speak to the Spirit and engage with Him and agree with Him, bring your words and your thoughts in agreement with Him, then you can feel His presence in a discernible way. Top of page four. The, the, the thing I want to emphasize here, just coming to the last few moments here, <clears throat> is that the Holy Spirit wants us to grow in this union. And these same five elements that I identified earlier, not that there's, there can't be more than these five, but you see these five elements in the Gospel of John between the Father and the Son. And you see these throughout the New Testament, how God wants our mind, emotion, will, words, and actions brought into unity with him in an intentional way. And the Holy Spirit is saying, I want to help you do this. I didn't just set this ideal before you to leave you and abandon you and just say, you know, just sweat it out. You're never going to touch it anyway. So just this is, you know, he's actually telling us this because he plans to help us with it, not just leave us aching for it with no connection whatsoever to it. Paragraph B, we are to be intentional to seek to bring our mind, emotion, and will, words and acts into agreement with God's. Knowing this moves his heart. Knowing this matters even in our own life when we do this. Over time, what he thinks and feels progressively fills our heart. Over time, it moves us more and more. It's incremental, it's progressive, it's step by step. In my experience, it's three steps forward, two steps back. Like it's not all just one steady, unbroken progression of growth. It's, you're, it's incremental, but you're, you're moving forward in it. Paragraph C, in the most practical sense, I'm just breaking it down as practical and pastoral as I can. Thoughts and words are the 
is what I would focus on, thoughts and words. Because if you will focus on bringing your thoughts and words in agreement with him, your emotions will catch up in time. Your decision-making will catch up in time. Your actions, your outward behavior will catch up in time. They will follow your thoughts and your words. And if our thoughts and words, our natural thoughts and words have darkness in them, and we think, well, you know, accusation, discouragement, lies, you know, and we just buy it, then our emotions are, are stalled out there in terms of their growth in the Holy Spirit. But if we go, wait a second, I'm gonna make, bring my thoughts into unity with his, and I'm gonna have words to back it up. I'm gonna say what God says. Then your emotions, little by little, line up. Your character lines up. Your decision-making lines up. So those are the two that I would really just, you know, where do we begin? How then do we live? Focus on thoughts and words coming into, into unity. And the other three areas will come into unity after that. Exert effort, emotional effort. It's really emotional effort. It's not really physical effort to bring thoughts and words into unity with God by rejecting the negative thoughts and not saying the negative words about yourself. I don't mean just negative words about people and complaining about the weather. I'm not talking about it that way. I'm talking about negative words about how God views you. Like, ah, it's just worthless. It's not worth anything. anything. I'm going to give up. Nobody matters. It doesn't matter. Blah, 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 blah. Don't. No, say, no, no. It does matter. My words are in his heart. They matter to him. And you might say, I can't imagine why, but uh, you don't need to say that. But they matter to him. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Thank you, Lord. Show me more. Jesus says this. <clears throat> I mean, this, he says in John 15, he goes, if my words get in your mouth and in your mind, if my words get in your mouth and in your mind, your prayer life will go to a whole nother level. Not necessarily the next day, but your prayer life will, will, give, will have an expression of my words and my thoughts getting in your mind and in your mouth. This is a key. That, remember, the, the larger context is let not your heart be dominated with trouble. He's actually giving another principle and truth about how to overcome a heart that's dominated with trouble. Paragraph D Getting a little bit ahead. These are the verses that follow right away. After verse 10 and 11, he says, and I'm not gonna break this down. This is a little bit more of what's coming in the next session, a little bit of it. But in the verses right after this, it says, if your words and your thoughts start lining up more and more with his, it impacts the, the, the realm of miracles in your life. Answered prayer, your love growing, Enjoying God's manifest presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. These different themes are unpacked in the verses that follow what he's saying here. He goes, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And I, he says this numbers of times. He goes, this, if you will take hold of this, these, the fruit of this, union with God, paragraph D, I've got it written out there. You can read it and look at it a little bit more, but it will impact your prayer life over time in a dynamic way. Let's look at paragraph two. The Father's words fill Jesus' heart. This is a practical, I'm trying to break it down the best I know how to in simple terms and simple concepts. The Father's words fill Jesus' heart. So, I mean, this is like over years and years and years. So when Jesus spoke, the Father's works were manifest. I mean, this, I mean, Jesus' the Father's words were in his heart at, at the 
ultimate level. But that, there is a, there is a deep correlation between the Father's words filling Jesus' heart and Jesus' words filling the Father's heart to miracles happening. And, and the correlation is there in Jesus' life. Therefore, the takeaway, the simple pastoral takeaway, practical, we value filling our hearts with God's words. We call that prayerful meditation, or I, or I call that prayer to, to pray, read the word, to take the word and to turn it into conversation with the Lord, a devotional way when I read the word and turn it into conversation. But here I'm calling it prayer, prayerful meditation. And then we speak words to his heart. We call that intercession. There's a correlation between his words filling our heart and then we speak them back and our words actually move his heart. It's prayerful meditation and intercession and that's what he's setting forth here in these next verses. He says, you'll do miracles. The prayer, things you ask for, you will receive because it can't be stopped. When your heart is filled with his word, then you speak words that fill his heart and he delights in them and then the things just start happening more and more and more. And I believe this is the trajectory of where the end time church is gonna be before the Lord returns. He's gonna bring the church to maturity in those final years of this age. Paragraph E, thoughts and words in agreement with the spirit, they bind our heart to God and they bind our heart to each other in the grace of God. When thoughts and words come in agreement with God, they bind our heart. David, paragraph F, understood this. He said in verse 14, Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, my mind, what I'm thinking on, be pleasing in your sight. The New King James says acceptable. Many translations, let them be pleasing to you. If I bring my thoughts and words into agreement, many things happen. Many things happen. You know, uh, in, in just the human sense, paragraph G, this is a little bit weird, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> we spend over the lifetime of 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, whatever, talking to people in our heads. Everybody does. It's just called thinking. Arguing with people in our heads. Planning, good plans, bad plans. Showing love, you know, picturing loving, all these things. But the person we're talking to doesn't even know we're talking to them. They don't know the amazing argument we came up with. They don't know any of it. They're not there. We're thinking of loving them. They don't go, wow, thank you. They don't even know. I mean, this is weird what I'm saying. But, but with the Lord, he's actually there. He's actually there. I mean, that's the point. That's remarkable. And he's... He's giving us just inspiration of his words that are not spoken audibly, I mean, into the natural world. His words stir us. He's actually there. That person we're talking about, thinking about, whatever about, they're not there. They don't even know it. Except for maybe they pass by, you smile or you frown. They go, oh, you're thinking about me. I can tell. But this is amazing. The Holy Spirit is actually there all the time. It's a real conversation. It really matters. Let's seize this thing. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. And last uh, thing here, we're called to experience this union, this active intimacy. We're called to grow in it more and more and more. Abiding in Christ, that's chapter 15, that's the term. But uh, this whole thing, this mutual indwelling, 
It's all abiding in him and him and us. It's the same thing. It's not passive. It's actually very aggressive, very active. It's very proactive. We're taking thoughts and words and wanting to line them up with him. And when our thoughts and words are outside, we're trying to get rid of them and to bring our thoughts and words in agreement. And again, most of the thoughts and words I'm talking about are accusations against ourselves, putting ourselves down, negating God's glorious plans of our life. When there's trouble believing God forgot us, that's a lie. He didn't forget us. He's going to work everything out together for good. Well, I can't see it, so it's probably not real. No, get rid of that stuff. It is real, even though you can't see it. We line up with what God says. Our goal is to cultivate this ongoing dialogue. And it's an awesome believe, uh, privilege. It's within the reach of the weakest believer and the newest believer. Meaning you don't need to go to five or ten years of training. A brand new believer can start this right from day one. They, they, they won't be so deep, but the process starts and it gets going. Anybody can do this. It's like we uh, looked at last week and ended with Deuteronomy 30 when Moses says, it's not so Far away, you got to go to heaven to get it. It's not too hard to where it's out of sight of my skill reach. It's not too confusing. You don't have to go anywhere for it. It's in your mouth. Just start saying it to God. Start the conversation. He goes, it's near you. It's in your mouth. That's how close it is in Deuteronomy 30. Well, amen and amen. Let's just stand before the Lord here. Now, I realize these are, some of these thoughts are a little, they're, they're a little mystical, and they're like, hmm, but wrestle with them. Say, Lord, I didn't understand half what that guy said, but, but the little bit I did, show me more of the little bit I did. I'm not sure he understood half what he said. I did, but not that much more than half, but anyway. No, but I mean, start, start, don't let this thing slip away. Father, here we are before you. Lord, we say that we love you. Lord, we want this. Abba, we want this. I want this for my children and grandchildren, my friends and their children and their grandchildren. We want this for the upcoming generation. Father, here we are. We say, touch us, move us, Holy Spirit. All I want to do, I just want to stand in awe and pour my love on you. Holy Spirit, talk to us. Holy Spirit would say, you talk to me.
pour my oil out is it a life laid down then holy spirit we ask you for your manifest presence even as we worship you and here's every melody just tell me what moves you just tell me what moves you is it a fragrance and i'll pour my oil out is it a life laid down then here i give my vows is it a song i Every melody, just tell me what moves you. Just tell me what moves you. Is it a place? And I'll pour my oil out. Is it a life laid down? Then here I give my vows. Is it a song I sing? people in the room just because it's would be normal your heart feels stuck tonight so lord i love you but my heart is stuck and there's 10 different ways it could be stuck you're saying i need prayer i i need real help tonight at the heart level you would like prayer i want to invite you to come stand up on these lines if you like we're going to ask the lord to jump start your heart not like one night fixes everything, but if he would just touch your heart tonight, just come stand on the front on the front uh, row first, so the folks can come behind you and stand on the on the back row. Yeah, just come stand on this carpet up in the front. Your heart's stuck. Some it's accusation. Some it's condemnation. Some it's shame. Some it's fear. Some it's regret. Some it's confusion. 
Some of the Lord's tormenting you. Some it's just heaviness. You don't even know what it is. Some of it's pain. Some of it's betrayal. There's a hundred ways the heart gets stuck. The Lord has an answer for the heart. And here we are in the family of God. We say, Lord, come and touch us. I'm going to ask a, a bunch of you to come and come just put your hand on their shoulder and just speak a Bible verse or a Bible truth over them. Like I tell folks, you do that about half the time, it's going to be prophetic. You don't even have to try to make it prophetic. Just say a, a Bible verse, a Bible truth. You don't have to say it word for word. Just paraphrase it. Speak it over them. Say, Lord, release this. For the, I ask you, Lord, for the wind of the Spirit. I, maybe a few more come down and help pray. Lord, I ask for the wind of the Spirit to move across this room. Those on the, on the web stream, those sitting in the chairs all through the, the room, you don't have to come up here to get prayer for. I ask you, Lord, liberate, liberate the heart for a spirit of liberty on the heart right now tonight.